Welcome to the Popular Pig Podcast, a convenient place where you can stay up to date on what's popular in the swine industry. By listening to Popular Pig, you will receive invaluable information on the latest trends, news, and research from various experts who guide the global pork industry. Popular Pig is brought to you by Swine Tech, the award-winning creators of SmartGuard and PigFlow. To learn how PigFlow can help you streamline your workforce and reduce piglet and sow deaths, visit swinetechnologies.com. Popular Pig is also made possible by the National Pork Board, Intervention, Johnsonville Foods, High Pork Genetics, Minitube, Brenneman Pork, Fibro Animal Health, Swine Robotics, Innovative Heating, and PigEquipment.com. Brought to you by American Resources. Welcome to the Popular Pig Podcast. My name is Matthew Rota, your host for today's episode. Today, we're joined by Dr. Brandy Burton and Dr. Amanda Reaver from Suaday. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having us. Thank you. So a month or two ago, we were sitting down and I asked both of you for your soapbox topic. And you said the way we talk about furs and the best tools to kind of look into that so I'm excited to dig into that today because I know both of you have a lot of really great things to talk about. Before we do that, Brandy, could you start by introducing yourself, what you do, and how did you get into the swine industry? Yes. So, um, yep, Brandy Burton. I'm a, a native of Illinois, actually. So I grew up in Chicago suburbs, um, went to the University of Illinois for undergraduate and for my um, DVM. And it's kind of a, a whirlwind of, of how I got into the swine industry, but I, on a whim, did meat judging uh, my very first year of college. And so that's kind of my introduction into the animal agriculture world is, in general. Um, through vet school, there's a, a program through Iowa State that is called the Swine Veterinary Internship Program. And so I did that for a couple summers, got to learn more about what pig vets do, and uh, really intrigued by the fact that it's more than just health and medicine, it's business, it's research, it's training, it's people, and the people are pretty awesome. So um, decided to go, I switched my focus from horses, which is my original intent, to pigs. And then I graduated from Illinois in 2019 and shortly after moved to Algona, Iowa to join the Suede team uh, here out of our main office. And that's where I've been ever since. And so today, um, most of my time is spent is pretty split half and half between doing some field research work as well as consulting um, throughout Iowa, Minnesota, and used to do some work in Nebraska. Um, and so today, yeah, still, um, I live in Humboldt, Iowa, and still work out of our Algona office. And Amanda, how did you get involved in the swine industry, and what do you do today? Well, I have a little bit different story than Brandy does. Um, essentially, I was kind of born and raised into the swine industry, um, I, I always knew I wanted to be a veterinarian and knew that I loved showing cattle and pigs through 4-H and FFA. And so I went on to Iowa State University and completed my whole education there and on to vet school and uh, also pursued a master's in veterinary preventive medicine while I was there. That really set me up um, for more of a career in population medicine medicine versus some of the other veterinary specialties. And so 
uh, always had my mindset on that and am really happy that that's where I, where I settled with Suede Health and Production. I grew up in Algona, Iowa, so it's kind of like coming back home to me and it's been mm. a really great start to my career here so far. I've had the chance to uh, to do a lot of things in practice as well as some research along with Dr. Burton, and um, I, I think it's been a really good fit for me. So before we, or as we kick things off, we might have people listening who don't know a lot about PERS. And so if we could just start out with some general information that people should know. So I don't... I don't know who would want to lead with that one, but what is some general information that people should know about PERS before we dig into RFLP, et cetera? Well, I can start us off on that one. I think most of our listeners are probably more than familiar with PERS from a producer and clinical presentation in terms of the the incredible detriment that it can cause to their swine herds and really all of the things that it it incorporates as challenges into their daily lives but some of the more um just just digging into the science a little bit some of the things that might be important for this conversation are understanding that pers is an rna virus and so because of that it makes it very susceptible to mutations and changes And those mutations and changes are sort of what drives this conversation in terms of the differences in PERS viruses, not only from within the genome, but also how they present and how immunity works. And so that's just important to keep in mind that PERS changes so rapidly and there are big differences in the viruses. And so today we're going to talk a little bit more about how we define those names or the differences in the viruses. And I think that's really the big thing to keep in mind here. But Dr. Burton, if you've got anything else, go ahead. Yeah, no, you hit it right on the head. I think the understanding um, that, yeah, what you said, it can mutate and it changes and it's going to change and it's going to mutate. Um, And it's going to, there's going to be a lot of different variations um, out there. So PERS has been around for, since the 90s, we'll, type, we'll say, so 30-some years. And basically what that has done is from the beginning until now, there's been a lot of opportunities. The amount of pigs we have in this country, um, there's, it's immense, right? So the amount of opportunities for that virus to change has just evolved over time, and that has just now produced a lot of different variations um, within the same virus that we're talking about. So for me, when we were talking about this, one thing that caught me off guard is we were talking about how the industry discusses PERS. And to me, not being a veterinarian and not knowing nearly as much as you guys do, I didn't pick up on it. But it sounds like we talk about it a certain way and it it might vary considerably between vets, producers, caretakers, allied partners. But can you guys talk about how, how do we discuss PERS status and health as an industry and, and how is that how has that been changing? Yeah, so today a lot of the ways that we talk are with what we call the RFLP or the cut. And so most people when you say, ah, we broke with PERS, it's one four four, one seven four, one seven two, we're throwing out 
these combinations of numbers. And that is what an RFLP is, these combination of numbers to help identify different strains. And the way that RFLP came about was to help differentiate between vaccine type and wild type. And so this is more of a, an older kind of um, technology. It, it was very relevant at one point, but the problem is, is that a 174 is not the same as a 174 and another 174. And so it's in, in today's world, it's a very vague description in our opinion, and we use it a lot. And I think that is where the communication piece can get a little um, misconstrued because they're not the same. A 174, just because you have two seven uh, 174s does not mean they're the same virus. And so um, today, most people still talk about HERS virus in this regard. And as we have more technologies, now we're starting to talk about lineages a little bit, and there's other ways to discuss HERS, but when you, when you talk to anyone, even among the vet community, producers, we're still talking about these RFLP cuts, and it's, it's I think, in our mind, when we, when, you know, Dr. Reaver and I discuss this, it's kind of like, ugh, you know, it, it's not really pertinent anymore. We know we can tell if it's vaccine or wild-type grape, but, like, let's move on to actually discussing these viruses and the way that they're actually shaped. Um, and uh, we, we, have, we know more information today, so let's use that information to have better conversations uh, on this, this topic. Is that why if you talk to a producer who's like, oh, I got 174 and it was really bad, and another one's like, I got 174, but oh, I got pretty lucky. Is it, is it really because they're two very different things, potentially? Exactly. Absolutely. I would completely echo what Dr. Burton said. I think the, the key point that she made there was that just because they're both 174s or any cut pattern that you're talking about, you may think initially, well, those have to be the same virus or at least close to the same virus, but they may actually react very, very differently clinically in the symptoms that you see in those pigs, as well as how they respond in their immune systems and responses to vaccination is really the takeaway we want producers to know here. So you talked a little bit about RFLP, but could you kind of dig a little deeper into that and talk about how that compares to lineage versus phylogenetic trees and endograms? Yeah, that's a great question. So we should probably define each of them a little bit closer before talking about the differences. And so yes, please. I can just give a brief description of those. So, so essentially RFLP is, it's a test that they do in a diagnostic lab that really only comes down to where a specific enzyme binds and and decides to to cut a very small portion of the PERS genome. And so then they've defined the numbers that go along with the cut patterns of those enzymes. So it comes down to a very small percent of the genome in terms of the OR5 cut pattern, which is what we're talking about is just a fraction of the whole PERS virus in general, but those cuts also happen at very small points as well. And so that's sort of what we were talking about with limitations of that versus some of the other ways we have to talk about this is, so lineages is a little bit newer of a version of of talking about that. And that uh, has some advantages as far as it's not as susceptible to changes with genetic mutations and sort of describes a more recent and relevant family of viruses. 
However, we still don't know exactly how that may translate to immunity and and a lot of times even clinical symptoms. Versus then you mentioned the phylogenetic trees and dendrograms. And so typically when we're talking about those, we're talking about an actual whole sequence of the ORF5 region. So still, still a fraction of the PERS virus, but rather than talking about a family or a cut pattern from the enzymes, we're talking about looking at all of the base pairs that are there and comparing that to those of a different PERS virus. Gotcha. Are there many misconceptions around that within the industry amongst all the different approaches? Yeah, I think it's, and it's, it's kind of hard to say misconception. I think especially um, some in academia and, and veterinarians who are a little bit more trained, who, who know a bit more about these technologies out there, um, you know, habit, hard, old habits are hard to break. Um, and it's been very comfortable to talk about RFLPs um, in the past. It's an easy way to discuss amongst, uh, you know, a wide variety of people. But it is a misconception in, in the fact where we alluded to earlier, a one like today, the 144, the 144 that everyone talks about, right? It's not the same as it was even a year ago. If you're looking at diagnostic reports, you'll see that on the report, they'll say it's 98.2% similar to the 144L1CV, right? The variant. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's even already a different virus, almost 2% different. That's a big difference, right? And so the misconception is that um, it is just the fact that we still refer to these RFLPs and they don't really have a lot of meaning. And so when you talk about um, comparing sequences or comparing virus virus, using things like phylogenetic trees and dendrograms, or, you know, it is the most specific you can get, but that's comparing uh, strain to strain versus the lineages is another way to talk about the family as a whole. Um, RFLP has been easy, but I think it's um, at this point um, not really much value anymore and those phylogenetic trees and dendrograms there's no simple process like they're pretty pretty full of information aren't they they definitely are they can be difficult to interpret if you're not trained to be looking at those but thankfully we do have some technologies that help us out with that as well as multiple diagnostic labs can help you put together comparisons and dendrograms and so it, taking a little bit of time to to dig into that and ask for the proper help or assistance or get trained on one of the, one of those programs, we can certainly do better to to compare and talk about PERS viruses. Can you talk more to the technologies out there that help you compare sequences? Well, Dr. Burton actually has a lot of experience with one of them specifically, and so if you would want to talk about that, that'd be great. Yeah. Yeah, so the program that we use um, is called BioPortal or Disease BioPortal. Um, and so that's a program that you can look at any type of sequence, um, whether that be PERS, flu, rotavirus, a lot of different. Um, but basically with that, that platform, it, it helps you interpret. What I like about that platform, it helps you interpret the, the differences in those sequences. So you get your pretty phylogenetic tree and you see all the branches. And so, okay, what does that mean? Well, there's different tools on that platform that allow you to compare sequence to sequence. How? So if I have a reference strain or say I have a client and I'm wondering, 
is there another one in our database that's similar to this or how many, you know, can we see who is most similar and how far they are from that strain? I can use a tool on that platform. Um, there's, you know, mapping, there's, a, there's just a lot of different ways to uh, visual aid and tools that we can use. Um, and the, the great thing about that is it does take a little bit to get trained up on. I've been using it since I was a veterinary student and I worked um, under Dr. Jim Lowe and was helping with some Illinois swine um, health surveillance in the state. So I've used it for a long time, but it, once you get trained up, it's very easy. And the thing I love about it is that we can do it immediately. So if I have a sequence that I got you know, within the last couple minutes, I can automatically go to our database and get some comparisons uh, quickly. And I think that's where um, the industry needs to lean on some of these technologies to get that immediate information because everyone wants to know the answer yesterday, right? And so yeah. how, can we, how can we best do that and help our, our clients and the industry? Because um, uh, reacting quickly is definitely going to be uh, key in, in tackling this virus. And then I would add to that as well. Um, so Dr. Burton trained me when I started at SUADA to use BioPortal. And so that has become a tool I use really frequently and help our other vets out with as well. But if, if there are any veterinarians listening out there, um, there's also a tool through the Iowa State Diagnostic Lab that you can actually just Google ISU PERS view. And there's a couple of tools on there where you can punch in and just paste your your sequences that you get back from the diagnostic lab. And you can compare several of your own sequences or compare to those that Iowa State has in their database. And that'll give you an idea of the state that it was in and the date that it was sequenced. And so that's a really simple version with a little more limited applicability. But certainly there are multiple options to dig into these sequences more. So you get a you get a report back and it says you're normal, as in this is a popular strain or it's close to being a popular. It's close. Yeah. And you get something back. that says, wow, this is very unique. How do you approach that differently as a veterinarian when you get something that is super unique? Well, I think the starting point is comparing to what else is out there. And so Typically, when you get a report back, they'll have a comment on it that says this is X percent similar to another variant out there or X percent similar to a vaccine. Or maybe you get a comment back that just says this is a wild type and they don't necessarily compare it to anything that's very well known. And so then in that case, that's when these tools, BioPortal or Iowa State's PERSView, and I'm certain there are more tools out there for for your disposal, but you can plug it in there and really test to see when was the last time that this was sequenced, whether that's in a larger database or your company's database specifically. You can actually link, we have ours linked to geographic locations of where these sites were at. And so if you're looking into wanting to understand how PERS viruses might have moved or how outbreaks might have occurred, you can compare sequences, excuse me, to follow them through time and space. Or if you truly get a sequence that there's nothing similar to in those databases, then maybe that leads you to believe that that was one of the earlier cases of a, a large change or mutation. And then, and then you can take steps to address um, stabilization or closure of that herd if that's 
your your goal in the scenario. So both clinically and understanding time and spread and outbreaks of PERS virus, you can use that to make a lot of decisions on on how you want to proceed. So when we look yeah. at the, go ahead. Well, I was just going to add, and when we when we talk about similarities between strains and being able to use these technologies that can tell us exactly how close other strains are genetically on the OR5 piece, we can then discuss strategies. One, if we have a client within our database that has a very similar strain, what did they do? What did that veterinary see? What can we expect? What, what um, you know, options should we do to control it? Um, we can start using, that's the discussion piece. How can we use this information? We want to find other similar strains to understand the history of that, that farm and, and what happened there um, to best try to uh, mitigate some of the consequences that PERS can um, cause. And so I think that's the biggest tool, being able to compare directly between these sequences is to help um, use history to you know, offset um, some other detrimental consequences because of it. When you come out with a strategy, are producers and teams pretty good at following those strategies for for that, or, or is it is it difficult to to get that compliance? We'll call it around those strategies. As how are they yep. pretty easy to follow? Have they're difficult to follow, and how does that really impact success or failure? I think the. The biggest thing that will determine success or failure is the buy-in on the farm level. So when we talk about strategies and protocols and SOPs, um, it means nothing if there's no compliance, right? And so when we go to these farms and we talk about different, um, you know, protocols, we'll say, um, it understanding, the farm has to understand why we're, we're saying these things. If we just go in and tell them, you need to do this, this, and this, I don't think compliance is as near as good. When you say we have to do this and this because of X, Y, Z, and therefore, if we do this, you know, what the follow-up would be or what the expectations are, I think farms, they're, they're, they're more than happy to do these things. And it, it definitely helps when they understand why they're going through some of these extreme measures, um, because some of it is a little bit more labor intensive. I'm not, we're not going to try to sugarcoat that, but when they understand why, and then they can see the impact because they know what to look for from taking those measures. They, they're much more likely to buy in. So I think the answer to that question is how you approach it. If you approach it with the understanding to take the time to explain, you know, how things work, I think there are people on farm are thirsty for knowledge. And so that approach of explaining why, what they're doing and the impact it's going to have really makes the biggest difference when you talk about um, those strategies. And keeping in mind that PERS is not a one-size-fits-all. So when Dr. Mm -hmm. Burton's talking about explaining those strategies and getting the buy-in from farm employees, really what's important there is that you take a step back as well and work with the veterinarian or if you are a veterinarian, work with the producer to determine their goals and what makes the most sense with their system because there's a lot of different opinions and many of them are good opinions on the best ways to manage PERS and you just have to take into account the situation in general and make sure that your strategy is going to be a good one for that specific farm. So when we look into the future around the way we talk about PERS strains, how does that need to look? What needs to change? 
what will it potentially look like that we can't even do today? Well, I'll start by saying we don't know all. There are lots and lots of discoveries we have left to make with PERS. And so we certainly can't can't see the future in terms of what's going to be the end-all be-all. However, we do have some technologies at our disposal now that are recently emerging and becoming more well-used. And one of those would be whole genome sequencing. <clears throat> and so I mentioned previously about how the ORF5 region is such a small part of the PERS genome, and that's typically what we sequence in, in many, many of our cases today. And so going from sequencing that small portion that's known to have a high mutation rate to rather sequencing the whole PERS genome gives you a lot more information. And so the reason that might be important is because there's scenarios out there where that region looks very similar to that of another virus. But if you sequence the whole genomes, you'll find that there are actually big, important differences in what you would have previously called a very similar virus. And so looking into sequencing the whole genome and actually um, as, as well as sequencing a whole one whole virus, you may also find pieces of a second virus or a third virus, whereas before you were only sequencing maybe, you know, a piece of one. And so getting more information on a single virus as well as more information on whether there may, may be multiple purse strains circulating in a farm, I think that's the future and a technology we need to move more towards. The other kind of Thing I will add to that, which is a, a kind of very different, and, and it may be an unpopular opinion. I will I'll be upfront with that, but I think it's going to be very important in tackling PERS um, to share more sequence information amongst um, regions, systems, clinics. I think um, you know, rightfully so, people like to keep that information close to the chest. But as we discuss what we just discussed today, how we talk about PERS comparing sequences and having databases where we can directly find um, uh, looking at genetic sequences, differences and similarities, that sharing of information is going to become key because you're only limited to the sequences that you have access to. And so when we're, you know, as an industry, I think we need to kind of all team up together to try to really tackle this terrible, terrible virus. Um, and I think a big piece of that is going to be sharing more information, as uncomfortable as that may be. Yeah, I would say we're just digging into, there are a lot of veterinarians that are sharing sequences on sow farms. And, and to just echo Dr. Burton's point and expand on that, I think it's also going to be really important to do that more in grow finish as well, because a lot of times sow farms and grow finish sites are within the same general areas and maybe passing viruses back and forth. And so the more we can track that outside of the sow farm realm, the better we're going to be able to track and control these viruses. Why do you think it's such sensitive information? Um, I guess I have some general ideas, but can you talk to why it's so sensitive to share that openly across the industry? And why do you think that might be a challenge? I think it comes down to people feeling like they'll be blamed or have liability for viruses passing to other systems or other producers. Um, if, if we have all of these tools to sequence and track 
essentially how viruses spread in time and space, you can see how we may be able to deduce where a farm may have gotten their virus from. And and sharing that information opens you up to potential blame. However, in almost every scenario I've dealt with, people are just thankful for having that additional information and, and really are not taking any action to be upset with or to blame where it may have come from. Gotcha. Have there been situations where, I mean, is that something where there really hasn't been much of a precedent set when it comes to a, a legal obligation to make up for potentially spreading or is, is it just kind of like it's the wild, wild west and we don't know what will happen if we actually do know where it came from? Well, it's all speculation, right? Yep. yep. So, so because your neighbor has that virus, right, we can speculate and we can think that's where maybe you, your farm was infected, but we can't for sure say that's the case, right? Maybe your caretaker was actually in another barn and didn't want to admit it. And, you know, I mean, there, there's a bunch of different avenues we could go down, um, yeah. but be, you can't really um, pinpoint always exactly. Well, hardly ever. Amanda does um, disease outbreak investigations. And so she's the best to tell you that, but we can't, it's all speculation and best guess. And so that's where I think we can't really, did, we, we cannot confirm, you know, it's very, very hard to confirm exactly where it came from. And, and that's probably what's so frustrating. And Amanda, I'd love if you speak to it. When, when you break with PERS, kind of a wild goose chase sometimes to figure out why. It certainly is. <laughs> and and um, we, so we spend a lot of time, whether in a formal manner or a very informal just discussion, trying to understand how farms may break with a virus. And, and in that discussion, almost every single time it comes up that typically we are not going to find the smoking gun per se and understand exactly where a virus came from and how it got into the herd, but rather we're finding multiple options for opportunity to, to an improvement in biosecurity. And so, like you said, it's it's kind of an adventure and a little bit of a wild goose chase. And every once in a while you get lucky, but most often we're just working for continued improvement. Well, we appreciate both of you taking the time to talk about this topic. And I think it's one people really need to understand a bit more because we do overgeneralize PERS in so many ways. Mm-hmm. Could you guys share before we, before we close out here, a couple of unique things about you that most of your colleagues do not know. And I'll let you guys battle who goes first on that one. (laughs) Oh, man. That's a great question. Unique. Define colleagues. Like in the industry or? I'd say the industry. Okay. Sure. Well, I'd say that I'm a horse girl, but I think most industry has uh, figured that one out. Um, (laughs) Yes. I, I guess so. My unique thing is I'm one. I'm one of seven kids. I'm the oh, second wow. youngest of seven, and uh, they all they all still live in Chicago. And so they come out. They, you talk about the Wild West. That's what they call Iowa. <laughs> <laughs> well, I I guess this is kind of common knowledge, but one kind of interesting thing is my husband's a cattle veterinarian, and so we come from very similar backgrounds and. 
I would say our jobs are actually almost as different as you can possibly get, which makes it really fun to have conversations about differences and techniques and technologies and the things that we do. And, and I spend a lot more time thinking about diseases and coming up with health plans and things like that. And he spends a lot of time doing uh, advanced repro techniques and things like in, in just different procedures. And so I think it's really, that's cool to just expand your mind on all the possibilities that are out there and how we approach veterinary medicine. Absolutely. Could you both share a golden nugget? a bit of life wisdom you've picked up along the way? I think my biggest nugget is uh, almost everyone, probably including myself, does not have enough confidence in what they're capable of achieving. I just had this scenario with one of our employees at Sude who, who made the comment that she has never had anyone believe in her like she has in her current position. And I don't mean to say, you know, that we're the perfect situation by any means, but all I'm trying to say there is that other people believe that you can achieve big things, that we can make progress in the industry and everyone else just needs to have that much confidence in themselves so that we can keep moving forward. That's really great. Yeah. My piece um, which I've just come to appreciate the more time I've been in the industry is that the, our, our, you know, our soldiers in the field, right. And the, our caretakers and those on farm, the ones that are actually in the day-to-day taking care of these animals and, and really ones following through all these things that we set for them. And they, I mean, I already mentioned it earlier, they are thirsty for knowledge. And so I think the more, um, that veterinarians or managers, supervisors, they're on farm and they're, they're telling, you know, instructing these caretakers on what to do. I, I think we need to do a better job of, it, of, of why, explaining why, educating, give them some, something to think about while they're performing these, what we'll call basic tasks. Um, I think just giving them mo- more ownership and more education um, on the farm, I think they just really want that. And then I think that in turn will make them appreciate their jobs more and labor crisis, right? It's a thing that, a hot topic. And so if we can um, get some of our current, caretakers on site to really appreciate what they do, understand the importance. It's such an important job. Um, and I don't think that that is always fully appreciated on farms. So I think we as an industry can do a better job of really um, strengthening that with our, our, on our, in our on-farm uh, staff. Absolutely. Uh, that's great too. I can, I can remember back to when I was spending more time in college working in the South farms and, and then grow finish and, I loved coming in on the weekends just because it allowed me to spend more time with the veterinarian. Veterinarian was one of the owners and being able to walk around and shadow and also learn from him changed in so many ways, the way I looked at my job. And when you think about these individuals that are thirsty for knowledge, everyone wants to be better at what they do. And most people don't go to work thinking, you know, I I hope I'm the worst. (laughs) <laughs> and so the more education that can be there, the more they can excel in what they do. And, and that's just going to drive a stronger passion, a stronger knowledge and realization mm-hmm. that what they do is huge for our industry. And I will, I will stand up on my soapbox and say that I don't think we do a good enough job as an industry to help people in the farm see transparently 
how close they are to all of the people out there making a big difference and really everything going on. I think a lot of people sometimes just see, I go in the sow farm or I go in my finishing barn, I do my job and I'm taking care of pigs. And that's a big part of it. But you're what, one or two people removed or a conference removed from seeing people that are changing the landscape of the industry at a global level. And I don't think people realize how close they are to the global impact that that the people they work with on a day-to-day or a year-to-year basis are making. Mm-hmm, definitely. So I really appreciate you guys joining the Popular Pig Podcast. I, I really, really am glad we found some time to do this one. And I hope that you guys continue to do great with your uh, with your customers and your clients. And I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, thanks so much for having us. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Popular Pig. We aspire to learn and grow together through the experience and wisdom shared by our esteemed guests. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues within the swine industry. For more information, please go to popularpig.com to receive updates when new episodes are available. Popular Pig is brought to you by Swine Tech, the award-winning creators of SmartGuard and PigFlow. To learn how PigFlow can help you streamline your workforce and reduce piglet and sow deaths, visit swinetechnologies.com. 